0: remember, if you could bring those trumpets up please, uh, Callum, uh, we've been looking at the seven trumpets in chapter eight, we looked at the first four, and here this morning in chapter nine we are at the fi- in the fifth and sixth trumpet, and we'll look at chapter, uh, the seventh trumpet uh, in another message in time to come. Um, God is speaking through these trumpets, and as I'll point out, it's uh, something that is, it's. Things that are happening in our world today and these trumpets uh, and what they have to say to us is very instructive for our living and indeed for the extension of god's kingdom in our lives so let's read from revelation chapter 9 and reading from verse 1 and the fifth angel blew his trumpet and i saw a star fallen from heaven to earth And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon and in the Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. So here's the second woe. I heard their number, and this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulphur, and the heads of the horses were like lions' heads, and fire and smoke and sulphur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulphur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshipping demons, and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, or their sorceries, or their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Amen. I read the story of a preacher who received an unsigned note in the the offering plate from one one of the members of his congregation. And the note read, and I quote, kindly see to it that your sermon presentation is more entertaining and concise well i'm not sure if sermons should be entertaining perhaps concise but i don't believe they should be entertaining especially when you come to a passage like revelation 9 i would say that any preacher would find it difficult to be entertaining given what we are told in the text. This is not entertaining material, is it? Far from it. And as I'll point out, we have to face unpleasant truth at times in our lives. If we thought that the first four trumpets of chapter eight and what they ushered in was terrible, which they were, well, we should think again. This is far, far worse. Here, John is spoken of, of the reality of demons in our world. Millions of them, a host of them. You might remember in the the last verse of chapter 8, the eagle cries out, woe, woe, woe. And so the three woes are yet to come. The three trumpets, five, six, and seven. And we come here to the first woe, which is the fifth trumpet these trumpet warnings are designed of course as i've mentioned before to call people to repentance and faith in jesus christ they are instruments of alarm and warning to the people of the world that judgment will come but as our text will point out there are those who ignore this call and do nothing about it they will not repent and i'll come to that as well in a moment those who do not repent and turn to god in the midst of the sounding of these trumpets and here also is part of the answer to the prayer of the saints remember in chapter 6 who are around the throne when they when they cry out to god how long O lord before you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood here's part of the answer and so this is language of judgment that we are dealing with well what of the fifth trumpet i just want to run through the uh, the fifth trumpet and then the sixth trumpet and then make some application. So you'd need to follow the text as I said before. What we recognize here is an escalation of judgment. Woe, 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 cries the eagle. And you would think that what happened to a quarter of the created order is horrific enough and we saw that in the previous chapters. And you would think that what was forecast there in the light of which people would turn from their evil ways and repent. But that's not the case. And so the fifth trumpet reveals things that are far worse from what we are told in chapter eight with the first four trumpets. It's now a third of creation that are affected, And here chapter nine and verse one begins by highlighting that a star has fallen from heaven to the earth. Now obviously it's not a literal star uh, that the text speaks about. So the question is who or what is this star when john says that he saw a star that had fallen from heaven in the greek he uses the perfect active participle which speaks of a completed action in other words the star had fallen from heaven previously he had already fallen from heaven and notice that this star is a person now why do i say that because we read, we read in verse 2 when he opened the abyss so given that the star here is a person that is an angel we ask who is this star referring to and obviously it's satan or lucifer i say that because there are texts in scripture which refer to satan as a star fallen from heaven Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 12 listen to what it says how you have fallen from heaven O Lucifer son of the morning you have been cast down to the earth you who once laid low the nations you said in your heart I will ascend to the heavens I will raise my throne above the stars of God I will sit enthroned on the Mount of Assembly on the utmost Heights of Mount Zaphon I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. That's the devil's current status. Having rebelled against God, he lost his place in heaven. He lost his position. And to him, that is to Satan, was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. the bottomless pit and i'll come to that as well in a moment and if you look down at verse 11 you will see that the angel of the abyss is called apollyon and abaddon and he is the ruler of the abyss in verse 11. and here satan is given the key to the bottomless pit don't miss that if you're reading through it you'll probably just skimmed over it, but that's important. He's given the key to the bottomless pit. He is under the control of God, in other words. He doesn't have the power to open the pit of his own will. Now you will remember that Satan is powerful, but you see, he's not all powerful. He is not almighty. He is a defeated foe. And here he opens the abyss And from it rises smoke that darkens the sky with a swarm of locusts. Now Australia has seen its share of locust plagues, hasn't it? But notice what the locusts were told not to do. They were not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree. That's exactly what locusts do, don't they? They harm the plants. But here they are told they are not going to do that. But More importantly, what's the identity of these locusts? The only other time the word abyss is mentioned, it's mentioned seven times in the book of Revelation, but the only other time it's mentioned is in Luke's gospel. And the word that's used here is the same word that's used in Luke's gospel. Now you remember that in the gospels, Jesus casts out a legion of demons from a man. And what happens is that the demons beg Jesus to not let them go into the abyss. To not send them into the abyss. And the same words used here. It portrays the fear of demons to be cast into the abyss. Or into the bottomless pit. So you might ask what is this bottomless pit? Well, we're not told. But it's somewhere where where the demons were confined. And so these locusts are demons. Demons. And John is saying that they will bring harm and devastation on the earth. And as we've seen in the previous chapters, there's symbolism used in the book. That's the case here with these locusts. They represent the demonic horse. And we read in verse 11 that this angel or Satan is called king or angel of the abbess. And his name is Apollyon, which is the Greek name and it means destroyer or the Hebrew name Abaddon, also meaning destroyer. But notice that when the pit is open, the locusts rise from the abyss in verses one to three. Now that reminds us as I've always said that there's so much Old Testament background in the book of Revelation. So here we, it reminds us that uh, in the time in Egypt how there was a plague of locusts was sent upon the land also the prophet joel in chapter 2 and verse 1 saw an army of locusts nothing like has been seen before and that army is summoned by the trumpet of the day of the lord and what joel says there is much like what john has to say here in our text except that the destruction of the locusts and what they do is far more devastating here in our text And John tries to describe them as best he could. And he says they have faces like humans. Something like crowns of gold on their heads. The crowns and the human faces, I guess, symbolize personal intelligence and the authority to do what they do. Their hair, says John in verse 8, was like women's hair. These creatures appear like women. But here John also says, look into their mouths. Look into their mouths, because their teeth were like lion's teeth. Probably talking about the ferociousness of these demons in what they do. And so they have women's hair, they have teeth like lion's teeth. What's John saying? He's saying, don't be be deceived by their apparent beauty. By discerning, be discerning and attentive to what they say, because their words will be destructive and deceiving. Their crowns and human-like faces are a a cover-up for their deceit. They exist to bring uh, demonic torment to all those on the earth. Satan and his evil hosts of demons go out to torture and destroy people. They have power to harm people, the people who make up the unbelieving world. Why do I say that? Because the text is speaking about the unbelieving world. Look at verse 6. They have power to harm all, all except those people who have the seal of God on their foreheads, verse 4 to 6. I guess you realize that Satan hates Christians, and that's to be expected. But do you realize that he also hates unbelievers because here he is leading people to their destruction however these demons cannot touch the people who belong to god and i've said this before as the text tells us because god has sealed them yes god has given them his spirit as a seal that they belong to him and we suffer physically too on earth as unbelievers do but what the demonic demonic world cannot do is that they cannot destroy God's people. They cannot touch the souls of those who belong to God. God protects them, God keeps those who are his. And notice that this torment is for a period of five months. Now, as I said, there's a lot of symbolism in the book of Revelation, and perhaps it's talking about a limited time all this stuff mentioned here has a limited time frame and notice that this torture that they bring to those without the seal into unbelievers seems to them a fate worse than death in other words in other words the people they harm would rather die than go through what god has prepared for them but the text tells us that death eludes them verse 6 They seek relief to death, but death is denied of them. Death will not be their reward. That's shocking stuff, isn't it? People seeking death so they can escape what the demonic world will bring to them because of the evil in their lives. Demons have always been in the world since the fall Here in the text, they are unleashed into the world without great restraint restraint in their activities. More and more, even today in our world, we see the increase of activity, (coughs) demonic activity. And I'm not just speaking of what's obviously uh, demonic, like satanic cults and demon possession and so on. It's more than that satan and his evil horse are active in most areas of life to die and they're active in subtle ways. for example just looking at the scene in australia without worrying about the rest of the world just think about some of the laws passed today in our own society and in our own country laws that are opposition to the church of the lord jesus murder for example is an everyday occurrence we've grown accustomed to hearing and reading of murder and rape and violence today so much so that we've come to accept it as part of everyday life i mean we read it in the news we hear it on uh, we hear it on the news and it just washes off doesn't it just another murder just another rape We've come to accept it as part of everyday life. Gender dysphoria, abortion, euthanasia, and so much else. Violence is on the increase. The abuse of women, you name it, it's prominent in our world. You see, more and more demons are being released. More demonic activity. And although the the texts relates primarily to the unsaved world Satan is also moving amongst God's people in subtle ways for example it's not unusual today to see some sectors of the church taking on our walk and cancel culture or at least accommodating it just think about it I mean why would Satan want to focus so much so on the unsaved world and not on God's people and his kingdom wouldn't that be right his focus would be more on God's people wouldn't it they are the ones that he would be more more interested in in uh, bringing these things to bear upon their lives seeking to keep them from the things that Christ has given us in order that we enjoy God and worship him and so having said that the priority of worship is another example in how Satan works behind the scenes. It would be true to say that the evil one uses this area to try and destroy the effectiveness of the church in our world today. Corporate worship is no longer a priority in some Christian lives. There are other things that come into our lives that crowd it out. It's become more a matter of convenience. If I can get to church, I will. If something else comes up, well, forget it. And we could cite other areas as well where the evil one works in subtle areas seeking to destroy the kingdom of Christ, which of course he could never do ultimately. And so the call is to be diligent and aware of what's going on in our lives and in the, in the, in the, in the society in which we live. Ask the question, am I doing or am I not doing that which I should be doing? to extend God's kingdom in my life and in the world at large? Am I using every opportunity to grow in the faith and love for Jesus and his people? You see, God has given us means of grace so that we can use them in our lives and grow in our Christian faith. And when we don't have those things, that's when we begin to regret it and cry about it. So that's the fifth trumpet. What about the sixth trumpet in verses 13 to 21? We're told that John hears the voice from the golden altar. Whose voice is that? Very likely the voice of the Lord Jesus, the lamb. It's the lamb who brings about an end to the restraint that has been shown so far. It's the lamb who is in control. Demons and all of creation are under his control. But notice that this judgment has escalated. Four angels are released to kill on a massive scale. They're angels who belong to the devil and represent evil, and they are released to kill a third of mankind. From having a third of the land, sea, rivers, and sky destroyed, as we've seen, and then to the mental and spiritual torment of a third of of the people, to now the killing of a third of, hum, of the human population. In verses 16 to 19, John tells of an invading army of 200 million horsemen. The angels release these horsemen to kill a third of mankind. Their heads are like lions, and from their mouth come fire, smoke, and sulfur, or brimstone. John is seeking to describe it here, and they are described in weird, grotesque terms. This is a powerful picture of horror, a picture of destruction and demonic association. Notice the number of them. He says twice 10,000 times 10,000. Now, if you do your maths, you will realize that's 200 million people or demons. Is this number literal or is it symbolic? We don't know, we're not told. It's likely that it's symbolic, like the other numbers in the book of Revelation. Suggesting that that here we have a number too great to count. A demonic army invading the earth. That's whom John is referring to in this symbolic number. A host of demons it continues the idea of the demonic army like locusts that was described in the fifth trumpet does this number seem too excessive or exaggerated some commentators try to work out this number of 200 million and they come up with all sorts of answers you know uh, speculate that it refers to the chinese or the russian uh, armies and so on Uh, Some say that this is the number and the army that will gather against uh, Israel on the last days and so on and so forth. But that number is way too excessive even for the Chinese or the Russians or any other army in our world. But what's most important is their task. It's to kill a third of mankind. And that's a lot of people, isn't it? And you would ask the question as to how they would do this, wouldn't you? How do demonic forces work to kill people? Well, we would have to say that it's primarily through other people, through people on the earth. And the next question is, has this been the case? Have we seen untold millions put to death from the time of John even up to today? Remember the tribulation, we believe, is from the time this vision was given to John right up to the time when Jesus comes again. So, have we seen untold millions put to death from that time, even up to today? Does this text continue to find its fulfillment as time goes on? And we would have to say yes. You see, we could cite so many world leaders who put millions to death through war, through concentration camps, and so on and so forth. People who were led by Satan and killed people throughout history. And you see, the Bible diagnoses that to be the case. People influenced by demonic forces to bring about the destruction of people. That's the Bible's view on those who promote evil. Men like Hitler, Stalin, and others who brought about war. And millions have died through it from the time this letter was written. And if you look back at history from the time of Christ, the armies that have been raised, the wars that have been fought, the millions who have died, babies who have been aborted, children trafficked and killed by it, and those who may die in coming years from all of this—these are demon-inspired activities. In the current war in the Ukraine, the USX ex- estimates that around 200,000 soldiers have lost their lives, together with 40,000 civilians. So this number seems rather uh, conservative, doesn't it? 200 million? I mean, sorry, half of uh, a third of mankind? Add to that that there are those who maintain that this killing could refer to murder by lies because fire and smoke and sulfur come out of the mouths of these creatures. In other words deception is being referred to the demons used the strategy first used by satan in the garden as he sought to deceive adam and eve and brought death into their lives and when we come to chapter 16 john sees three evil spirits coming from the mouth of the beast to deceive the kings of the world again deception is prominent My friend, Satan is the father of lies, and Jesus tells us that in John chapter 8. But once again, more importantly, is the reason why John was given this vision of this vision of so much devastation and death that comes to unbelieving people and why he records it for us. And the reason is the same as that of the fifth trumpet, except that it's explicitly stated here with the sixth trumpet. What's the reason? Look at verse 20 and 21. The rest of mankind did not repent nor give up worshipping demons and idols 21 nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries their sexual immorality or their thefts here's the reason for the vision god is giving people time to repent The implication of the text is that what is brought to bear on the world is designed to call men and women to repentance. God is showing his love and his grace. Listen to 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should turn and repent. But reading the text, sadly, that's not the case. They did not repent, says the text. God knows the reality of what will happen. You see, my friends, sin can so harden the heart and minds of people that they become oblivious to any warning signs or to the call for repentance. They choose rather to live for the present and ignore the warning signs that are all around us. The 200 million troops go out and they are sent to deceive the masses into living as if God is dead. We see it in our society today. So there's no need to repent, is there, if God is dead? They are too caught up in their present enjoyment of sin and sin does bring pleasure that they don't want to give it up, having become insensitive to sin and ignoring their conscience. Perhaps this is why the Lord chooses to describe the warnings here in such shocking and vivid terms. It's so that it will shock people into listening for the sound of these trumpets. To read the signs of the time and when they see these things taking place, to ask the questions of faith. To ask the questions about eternity in the light of suffering and pain and evil and turn to the living God for refuge and find salvation in him. And people are asking questions in our day and time, are they not? Why is there so much suffering in the world? Why is there so many wars going on? Why so much murder and rape and child abuse and such horrendous stuff that goes on all around? People are looking for answers. Why these things are happening? Or to bring it closer to home, why is there sin in my life? Why cannot I find peace and satisfaction in my own life Why the unrest in my soul? Why broken relationships all around me? And to come to my senses and to see that it's because of sin. That sin is the ultimate cause of these things. That sin in my own life as well. That we are responsible to a holy God who has created us. And sin has broken that relationship that we have with God and separated us from him. And the only way I can find peace and reconciliation with him is if I come back to him. Return to him and find forgiveness of my sin through the means he has provided for sinful human beings to be restored into a relationship with him and find peace with him. Here's the answer to, the, to an unrepentant world. To accept the love of God for us in Jesus and his cross so what more can we take from this I want to pick up on verse 20 and 21 and ask the question as to why people do not repent of their sin and turn to Jesus you ever wondered that you would think that with all the devastation that this chapter is speaking about and the suffering and evil mentioned here that it would get the attention of at least some and move them to repentance. But here we read that the rest of mankind did not repent. Verse 20 and 21 is a sad statement, isn't it? It's diagnosing the problem of people who will not be saved. It tells me that there are those in our world who want to hold on to their sin, who want to hold on to their way of life, even to the extent that they are happy to forfeit their soul, who ignore the signs, who ignore the gospel, and the call of God to come to Jesus and find their sins forgiven. And we can cite quite a few reasons from the scriptures as to why they don't, good sound theological reasons, but I just want to highlight one. And I do that not just to be theologically informed because that in and of itself would count for nothing unless there is a response to it. But I do so because it's my prayer that in highlighting it, that it would move people and even scare people into repentance, if that be the case. That the Lord would use it to awaken faith in lives. So why is it that people fail to repent in spite of all the warnings and judgment that are brought to bear upon the world? You know, you can talk to some of your friends and they might respond to the gospel. Whereas you talk to others, and they won't have a bar of it. They are hostile. They are even abusive. Why? Why some and not others? Well, the Bible says that their eyes are blinded by the God of this world, and they love their way of life, and they don't want to give it up for God. Look at verse 20. This is just one verse, and it's in our text this morning. It says, They did not repent nor give up. And that says to me that they not only wanted their sin but they enjoyed their sin and they wanted to stay that way. They did not want to give it up. And that's not surprising because the scripture tells us that people left to themselves, love their sin and freely choose their sin other than Jesus. And that seems logical, doesn't it? It's logical if you know what the scripture says. John says in his gospel that men love darkness over light because their deeds are evil. And in being in that state, it reminds us that people cannot and will not repent unless the Holy Spirit does a work in their lives to the power of the gospel. That people will continue in that way of life without Christ, why? Because sin is enslaving and left that why they will continue to choose their way of life rather than turn to Christ. That's the reason. That's the theological reason, if you like, as to why verse 20 and 21 tell us that they did not repent nor want to give up their sin. They have no desire to give up their sinful ways. And what's most, most sobering and heart-wrenching is the fact that when people persist in their sins and stubbornly resist the gospel, When Christ comes to them and offers them forgiveness in the gospel, what happens is that God gives them up in their sin and they are confirmed in it. Yes, I know that sounds harsh and I don't wish to be harsh, but that's the sad reality. That's what the Bible teaches us. Romans 1 28 to 32 tells us that God gave them up to the sinful desires of their hearts. The phrase God gave them up is used three times and it has to do with handing over a prisoner to his sentence. When people consistently and repeatedly reject God and would rather continue in their sin, there may come a time when God abandons them and confirms them in their sin. And really... Verse 20 and 21 tells us that God gave them up to what they themselves wanted. They did not repent nor want to give it up, it says. So how could you maintain, how could you accuse the Lord of being harsh or unjust? Throughout history, God has been gracious, striving with people, showing patience and grace. But the time is coming when his patience will run out and he gives them up either indirectly by removing his restraint and letting sin run its downward course or directly by an act of divine judgment and punishment. So it's not that the Lord is harsh, it's the opposite because the Bible tells me that no one who comes to him will he cast out. He is not willing that anyone perish but that they turn to him and live. And what's more, all these by their persistent, willful rejection of Christ and his gospel, they are showing that they are not his people. In other words, they are not numbered among the chosen people of God because the fact is that if they are, they will turn to Christ. They will come to him and find his forgiveness. What did Jesus say? Jesus, the good shepherd, my sheep will hear my voice and they will come to me. They will come to me, not they may come to me or they might come to me. No, they will come to me because they are my sheep. They hear my voice. They respond to the gospel. They will repent and find forgiveness. They will do the opposite to what these in verse 20 are doing because they love and pursue righteousness. So let me ask, are you one of those who persistently reject the call of the gospel on your life? My friends, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't keep persistently turning your back on Christ because the time may come when it's too light. When God may give you over to your persistent rejection, your persistent, stubborn rejection, turn to him now before it's too light. Secondly, let me apply this to the Christian as I close. What does it say to those who are God's people living in the midst of these trumpets that are sounding? What response should it bring from us uh, in light of what is, being, what is being said? The text highlights the fact that sin and evil is all around us. The release of the locusts and the horsemen and the escalation of judgment. So how should we respond? Well, we are to live with a sense of urgency, aren't we? to take the good news of the gospel to those who are without Christ, to share Jesus with others. Those in our family, friends, work colleagues and others, whenever we have the opportunity to do so. I spoke about all that in my last message, so I won't elaborate on it. But also and most importantly, what I believe our response should be as the people of God, who are living in the midst of all this, is for us to strengthen faith in Christ in our own lives. And to send our roots deeper and deeper into Jesus. In other words, to grow faith in Christ and in love for Jesus. And in that way to fight the pull and the temptation and the sin to which we can so easily succumb. To make sure that we are feeding ourselves with the truth of God's word. Because that is how faith grows. God's word is an instruction manual for our lives. And we need to read it. We need to know it, we need to study it. When Christian writer and apologist C.K. Chesterton was asked, he was asked the question, if he was stranded on an island and could have just one book, what would it be? And they expected him to give the answer along the lines of the Bible or the the spiritual answer, etc. Instead, this is what he said, if I am stuck on a spiritual, if I am stuck on an island And I could have just one book, I would like to have a manual to shipbuilding. (laughs) The Bible is our practical guide to living in the midst of the trumpets that are sounding. And what's more, as believers, we too are called to live a life of repentance and faith. Not just in the unbelieving world, but we as believers too are called to live a life of repentance and faith, to repent of our sin daily and return or turn to God. Remember the story of the prodigal son? One of the themes in that story is that of repentance. He was the son of the father. We're told that having gone into a foreign country and spent his money on loose living, he suddenly came to his senses about what he was doing and he returned to the Father. He came to the realization that what he was doing was stupid. I'm going back to my Father, he said. He had a change of mind, because that's what repentance is. That's the heart we want to have as believers. Why? Because believers too need to constantly repent of their sin. To say, like David, Search me, O God and know my heart. Try me and see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the path of righteousness. Lord, I want you to change me and do your work in my life. And that's the exact opposite, the exact opposite attitude that we find here in the text. These folk had horrific things going on around them, but they refused to repent and turned to the Lord. I'm going to close by giving you a text that speaks about this. And it's from Isaiah chapter 30 and verse 15. It's an easy reference to remember. Chapter 30 and half of 30 is 15. Isaiah 30 and verse 15, that's how I tend to remember things with texts. And this verse was given to God's people, why? Because they were being sinful. They were turning to Egypt in order to uh, entrust their national defense and put it in the hands of Egypt. In other words, trusting Egypt seeking to make a treaty with them rather than trusting in the Lord and despite Judah's rebellion God in his mercy does not cast them off forever he calls them back to repentance and trust in him and this is the verse, and this is what it says this is what the sovereign Lord the Holy One of Israel says in repentance and rest is your salvation in quietness and trust is your strength but you would have none of it. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. And we too can take those words and we can use it for our lives, in our lives. It's words that the gospel highlights, doesn't it? For the life of the believer. God is saying that our salvation is predicated or affirmed on repentance and rest. In other words, we repent of our sin and we rest in what he is doing through what he has done through Jesus and the cross. We rest in him through repentance and faith. May we all seek to live a life of repentance and faith in God and rest, rest our lives in what Jesus has done for us. And that's how I believe we can go through the tribulation as the trumpets continue to sound and the things mentioned in the text happen on an ever-increasing scale. Let's pray. Lord our God, thank you for the sounding of the trumpets and its call to repentance and faith in your son, to faith in Jesus, so that we will be saved from the awful judgment on the last day thank you for your saving power in our lives and that you will keep us and in the end that you will grant us eternal life as a gift through your grace so may we live lives in response to your grace and love for us in Jesus because Lord we recognize that he is our only hope our only hope both in life and in death. In his name we pray. Amen.